And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We have two archival interviews for you that I hope you will enjoy. In part one, an interview that examines the amazing and mysterious phenomenon of whale song. In part two, one of the loveliest books ever written about the joys of owning a puppy. Here's part one. You may or may not know or recognize that very interesting sound. It is that of the humpback whale. And on the clarinet, the author of the book Thousand Mile Song, Whale Music in a Sea of Sound, David Rothenberg. He has joined us before. He uh, was the author of a very interesting book called Why Birds Sing, which explored uh, the the interesting uh, phenomenon of bird song, something which is all around us and yet which we tend to utterly take for granted. And uh, and now in this new book called Thousand Mile Song, he does a, a very similar sort of thing, albeit about a very different kind of song. And indeed, one of the most intriguing things about this particular topic is uh, to follow the various ways in which scientists and environmentalists and musicians and many others have found themselves intrigued by and mystified by the Song of Whales. Hence this uh, fascinating book published by Basic Book uh, called Thousand Mile Song. And David Rothenberg, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks for inviting me back. Yeah, good to be talking with you once again. Um, I think it's really interesting to, uh, and I wish I'd thought to bring your your book Why Birds Sing along with me. It's on my shelf at home, and uh, it's a book to which I have returned uh, time and time again. And uh, I remember you talking about how uh, with the singing of birds, it's it's something that's all around us, and yet to actually study it, to track it, to track the singing of a given bird is is not nearly as simple a matter as we might immediately assume. And that likewise, and maybe in some ways to an even greater extent, it is tremendously challenging to, uh, to study the song of whales. That's right. There's a lot of things that make it much harder. Two things really stand out. First is that uh, whereas we've listened to bird songs for thousands of years, been mystified by them and wondered about them. When it comes to whale songs, nobody knew about this until the end of the 1960s. So we only have about 35 years of thinking about whale songs. And you can trace something I do in the book, trace the history of people discovering this and becoming fascinated with whale sound and making music out of whales and such. It sort of it came upon the scene when we stuck microphones deep underwater and heard these sounds for the first time. And that's the first thing. The second thing is that, of course, they're living underwater in a whole different environment from ours. And so to even interact with and hear these sounds, you need technology. You need underwater microphones and headphones. And, and you're, I, I sat on land or on a boat with my clarinet and played into a, 
an underwater speaker that broadcast the sound underwater and then listened to what was going on, made these whole underwater recordings. So I'm listening to myself being broadcast in this alien world. It's very hard to feel like uh, you fit in there as a human because it's underwater. Hmm. And so it's it, it's really even more so than with birds reaching out to a sort of alien world here on this planet and trying to jam, trying to fit <laughs> in, trying to musically join in with these amazing creatures about which very little can be known. Right. At one point uh, you say, we want to reach them, but we cannot. Yeah, uh, I think <clears throat> at one level we cannot. We're never going to quite know what it's like to be a giant humpback whale lumbering through the sea in a different sense of time and scale. Right. Tell our listeners about how we came to first understand, relatively recently, that there was this thing called whale song, I mean, that, that no one right. had ever known of before. We're talking particularly here about humpback whales who uh, were discovered to make these incredible songs, and the reason is that the Navy had been listening since World War II underwater, building a network of... Uh, very sophisticated underwater listening devices, and hydrophones they're called, underwater microphones, and set up all across the oceans of the world so that they could listen to whatever was going on down there, particularly they were concerned with Russian submarines making strange sounds deep underwater. It turned out mostly what they were hearing was whales, you know, decades of listening to whales, which they weren't that interested in because, uh, you know, that's not the enemy. They just called them biologicals. It's just a biological thing, <laughs> serious. But then what happened is, that off of Bermuda, a man named Frank Watlington, who was manning the hydrophone station there, he heard these incredible sounds that were much more musical, much more complex, much more emotional sounding than the kind of scratches and clicks and noises they were hearing down there usually. And he said, what's this? And then he realized there were some whales surfacing shortly afterwards. So he pretty soon figured out sounds came from humpback whales and you give us what to do with this discovery you give us the the year 1955 where he first heard these sounds over headphones and could see three humpback whales uh, in the distance and that's, right, that's a long time before we told anyone about this right in fact you say for 15 years you say no one besides watlington and a few woods hole acousticians knew the beauty and range of humpback whale sounds. That's right. It was all classified information. The Navy really wanted to own everything you could hear underwater. And then after a while, Watlington decided we really should get some scientists involved who might be able to investigate th these sounds more because they seem remarkably complex and organized and structured. And that's where he contacted Roger Payne, who's since then become you know, the number one campaigner for saving whales around the world. Hmm. And he uh, also brought on, with the help of Scott McVeigh, who was a young uh, kind of amateur interested in whales, worked at Princeton University, but he previously had worked with John Lilly trying to teach dolphins to talk down in Florida. And uh, it was McVeigh who actually printed out the songs on primitive sonograph devices that could print out sound in a way we can look at it and see the structure. Taped all these pieces together, put them on the living room floor, and realized there was a, really a, a kind of sense of intelligent structure here that was very hard to hear the human scale of listening, but the structure was really clear. Hmm. And he said, well, we've got to publish this, and this is, big this is a big discovery. Right. That's anything like this. And that, so 1970 was when they started to come out. Right, and, uh, and initially in an article uh, in, in Science magazine. That's right. The, you know, the, the official, one of the major scientific journals in America, 
It's still probably the best article on the structure of the humpback whale song, which is remarkable. You know, people since then have not taken a global musical overview to the whole phenomenon. Right. And, and of course, in the wake of that, uh, a recording is released. Right, the recording the came out first, actually. And the recording, oh. you know, because it was easier to get the record out, and they wanted to wait until they could be on the cover of Science. That took a few months. And the recording oh, I see that. was immensely popular. Songs of the Humpback Whale. And probably anyone who was around then remembers that this record was part of the whole world of new music and culture and possibility mm. in the 1960s. I think you say it very well at one point. It is rare for humanity to come across a new experience that is impossible to expect or describe. No one imagined great whales could make such great sounds. And this was an age when new experience was especially treasured, sought out, and blended with a rush of sensory possibilities. We dreamed of a better, more joyful world, and singing whales would be part of it. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I think you described that really well. I mean, it, it takes us back to a time that you know, one might or might not remember, depending on how, how old you are. <laughs> well, I was a little kid then. But then I, I read, went and read all the reviews of this record, saw what people said in all these magazines and newspapers. And actually, the best review was in Rolling Stone with editor John Carroll. He really got it. He says, you know, this is just a really good record. <laughs> Whatever you think, it's just amazing stuff to listen to. Hmm. So then I emailed him, asked him if he remembered uh, listening to this. He said, no, I don't remember much from those days. <laughs> we all were doing a lot of drugs. Hmm. But he's still around, so... He, the thing that is, it, he understood it, and then a lot of people were worried. Even John Carroll was saying, "Please, let's not just turn this into trippy music. You know, it's something serious." And I think a lot of people today, those who remember whale songs, tend to, to want to file it away with everything. Well, right. I mean, seventies. It's like the prototypical new age experience. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a kind of a musical lava lamp in a exactly, sense. Exactly, a musical lava lamp. But actually. Just amazingly beautiful and complex and wonderful, and uh, people seem to have forgotten about it. And I think it's time to bring it back and realize that uh, we still don't know that much about it. We still haven't figured it out, or I think appreciated it as much as we should. Really listened. I think one connection that is so important to to draw is that by realizing that whales sing, it ended up being also a, a means by which we thought of them in an entirely different way. And this was part and parcel of the movement to finally try to save the whale from the very real threat of extinction. Talk for a moment about how the song of whales played such an important role and how without that, to this day, we might not be thinking about whales and, and working to preserve them um, with the ferocity that we are. Yeah, I mean, in general, uh, people didn't think much about whales in the 1960s. You know, whalers were killing them off quite successfully. The general public didn't have much experience of whales. You know, they might have been important 100 years ago, sources of oil, etc. But by the 60s, you know, it was just industrialized whaling was killing more whales than anybody needed. And the general public was not really aware of this. When the song came out, all of a sudden a lot of people got interested in whales. And after that, from the song, I think, started the whole movement, Greenpeace, environmental 
the environmental movement was was growing and be, becoming started. Maybe it began with Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, and chemical industry and things like that. But pretty soon it was on to saving endangered wildlife, and whales were the perfect symbol and case study for this because they were just huge animals that people were killing without even knowing much about. And this quickly began to change. Public support quickly rose in favor of whales. I think without the song, this never would have happened. Hmm. No whale watching without the song first getting people interested that there were whales out there. Now, I wonder, and obviously you are very close to this topic, in a sense you're the last person I should pose this question to, but let me ask you nonetheless. Um, to some extent, is this a case of propaganda? I'm, I'm thinking back then, not so much now, and I don't mean your book, but back then. Uh, the fact that we were taking these sounds which whales were producing and we were assigning it the term of song and singing and music in a way that we would not necessarily describe uh, I mean, a grasshopper in our backyard rubbing its legs together. I mean, you know, in a sense, you might call that singing or a song or music, but but you don't run out and save the grasshoppers then in the same way. But that, but by talking about it, the, these these beautiful sounds being produced by assigning them terms like music and singing and song, uh, that was one way in which the whale suddenly became this incredibly intelligent creature and beautiful in a way that it had not been thought of before. But in a sense, are we talking about a bit of manipulation or a careful slanting of the facts towards a very laudable goal, one would say? Well, there's a, there's a few parts to, to your question. On the one hand, I can tell you why I think that both bird song and whale song really is, they both are music for, for a somewhat technical reason, which is that they're very organized, uh, carefully patterned series of sounds that probably do not convey a lot of specific information, and there's right and wrong ways to perform them. And the sounds are organized. They have, to, they have a beginning, middle, and end. They're speaking of bird song and whale song here. They're learned by the birds and whales, and yet they, they're not like language. They're not communicating specific information you could translate into anything else. For whatever reason, these animals are putting sounds together for their own sake. In that you can't translate, say, an instrumental piece of human music, you know, a solo piano piece by Bach or a jazz improvisation. You can't easily say what it means. It's not language. It's understandable. It communicates something to us. But it's hard to say what it can be translated into exactly. To say that birds sing to attract mates or that humpback whales might be singing for the same reason isn't dealing with the song in itself. And I think that when, as soon as people listen to and heard these things, they recognize this. And we've called bird songs songs for thousands of years. When we heard whale song, you know, once people started studying it in detail, they realized that pro- there was not a lot of information in these sounds because the same stuff was repeated over and over again, but in very distinct patterns. And they called it a song for a specific reason. So in that, in that sense, I think uh, it's a somewhat technical answer, but it, it's one way in which these sounds really can be best understood as music. The other is that, you know, McVeigh and Payne said, you know, this whale emits a series of surprisingly beautiful sounds. They're incredibly beautiful in a direct emotional way. Hmm. 
is it propaganda to then use it to save whales? Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah, they're singing. It's amazing. Who would have thought such a thing? Moby Dick doesn't talk about singing whales. They were silent back then. Is it then you decide, oh, how intelligent are whales? Are they must be they be very intelligent because they're singing these songs? That's also a complicated question. What does it mean for an animal to be intelligent? Obviously, these creatures are intelligent enough to survive whatever they've got to deal with. Some of them are inquisitive curious, interested. Humans tend to call animals intelligent if they're interested in us. <laughs> so the whales aren't that interested in us, but they do a lot of complex things. And, you know, they, they learn from each other. They have a sense of culture. They sing. They, 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 um, they are organized in complex societies. You know, does it count as intelligent? You know, smaller whales, dolphins are kind of the same type of thing as a whale, also a cetacean. They can be taught to do all kinds of stuff. So we know that they are, you know, they have amazing abilities. They can see with sound certain kinds of toothed whales, dolphins, belugas. They can identify a very complex-looking object just from bouncing echoes off it. That's pretty amazing. You know, our, our most advanced technology can't do it as well as a whale or a dolphin. Do these things count as intelligent? You know, it's hard to know. I would in fact, in your book, you point out that um, we're still trying to figure out exactly what human intelligence is and how exactly, best to yeah, study we, and how best to quantify it. That's right. Let alone throwing around a lot of suppositions about how intelligent any animal is, including exactly. the whales. Let's stick with this propaganda idea. Like, say, okay, people start to learn about these animals, and then uh, because of this new knowledge, we then want to save them. Okay, why do we want to save them? Because, you know, we sort of feel we're eliminating them for no good reason, and that it's a better way to live as human beings, to care about nature, to preserve it. Nobody needs to eat whales or kill whales anymore. And so the 70s and 80s, you know, uh, people really argued with the International Whaling Commission. In 1986, they put forth a moratorium on commercial whaling, which most countries around the world have agreed to. And since then, populations of whales have really returned. There's many more humpback whales than there have been throughout the whole 20th century because we stopped hunting them. So there's a lot more. Now, does that mean we shouldn't pay attention to them anymore because they're now no longer so threatened or endangered? You know, that's part of the whole debate with environmentalism. Ocean in general isn't in such good shape, so we don't know what things will be like in coming decades for all creatures living there. But I think it was a, a, a wise and uh, admirable move of, of countries around the world to stop killing whales. Few countries still do, such as Norway and Japan. They just want to disagree with what everyone else says, and that's unfortunate. And uh, but last year, J Japanese said they're going to start killing humpbacks, and the world protested strongly enough that they withdrew that. They withdrew that uh, claim. Why did they want to start killing them? Just another whale they can kill and eat. Why did people want to stop it? Because these whales sing. <laughs> we're, we're speaking with David Rothenberg about his very intriguing book called Thousand Mile Song. I think actually we haven't touched on that very intriguing title and what it is about whales and their singing that, that inspires that title. The title comes from a, a particular fact about the song of the fin whale, one of the biggest of whales, second largest, twice as big as a humpback, 90 feet long maybe, and th these things uh, don't make so uh, mellifluous a song, their sound is just a single low pulse, like so low we can't even hear it. Hmm. 40 hertz, maybe, beneath the range of human hearing. And a sound that low, if sung at the proper depth, 
certain depth in the water, that sound could reverberate across an entire ocean and reach the other side of that ocean in about an hour. They travel really fast and really far. Just these really low sounds at a certain depth in the ocean, a place called the Deep Sound Channel, again, that the Navy discovered in the 1950s. And they said, well, we can send sounds across oceans down there. You know, that could be useful. They started hearing these regular pulses down there, and they said, what? Maybe the Russians are onto this already. And then, again, biologists found out they were whales. You can still find sonar manuals that say, biologists say these sounds are whales, but we're not so sure. Because it's so regular, one pulse, then two minutes later, another pulse, two more minutes, another pulse. And so it's presumed the whales hear this as some kind of rhythm, even though it's so slowed down. Hmm. So that's just an amazing, uh, amazing fact that led me to title the book Thousand Mile Songs. I love that title. It's so big and so vast, and uh, not all whale songs travel that far. It's easy to get confused with information like that because every species of animal is like a world unto itself Hmm. and we know nothing about so humpback whale songs do not travel that far it's interesting though you you talk of how in in certain parts of the globe there'll be uh different dialects among uh, the songs of of various whales that's right in different areas you know there's a different culture of how they what kind of sounds they make similar as different birds and different sides of a city sometimes have a different you know different songs one of the great mysteries and questions is that it seems, for sure with the humpbacks, I forget with other species, that it is the males who sing and, and not the females. Uh, if, if I remember correctly, that, that very much remains a mystery in terms of why that should be so. I mean, is there a physiological difference? Between, uh, no. No, I, mean, I didn't think so. Standard explanation is if only the male whales are singing, if it's mostly happening during breeding season, it must be to attract the attention of females. Hmm. How Although often you, you, have we seen a female show any interest in this? Never. Right. Never seen them. It seems like the songs don't work very well. It might if be that's for something the... else. And among those who have studied and watched whales, they find other males seem to pay attention to the song, but not in a very competitive territorial way. Instead, hmm. something cooperative might be at work, but we really don't know enough know what it's all about. Let's, uh, let's ask uh, uh, the question that draws you into the thick of this, because of course you are interested not only in tracing who has been interested in whale song and how they've gone about studying it over the years, but your own encounters with whales and your attempts as a musician to, uh, to make music with whales in the same way that you uh, have done so with birds. Um, and it, it's intriguing. We, we get the sense that... Um, through your painstaking efforts, that uh, it it takes a great deal of patience uh, in order to get a whale to to seem to be very interested at all in in the music that humans make. Oh, which makes a lot of sense. Why should they care about us? Right. <laughs> you know, you have to spend some time learning about their sounds and try and interact and play along and see what would happen. Mm. And. Uh, yeah, it, it takes a lot of effort, and you know, I, I think one really should spend decades doing this before you really have some results. Right. <laughs> so, but I started to have glimmers of it. Oh, absolutely. I we really hear feel some of that. The second track of the CD, the whale seems to be responding to what uh, I'm doing. And the other day, I was listening to another part of that recording that I had sort of ignored, and it was even more interesting. <laughs> like there's more going on than I already in my efforts. A few years working on this, we're starting to hear some encounters and uh, you know it's a lot of effort to go to a place where there are whales they have to you know there's so many things that can go wrong too much hmm. wind boats drifting away the whales swimming away spend a lot of time and and uh, 
but I hope to do more of it, and uh, I think that it is uh, something worth trying out. Absolutely. But, you know, on the other hand, I, I mentioned it is against the law in the United States. We have the Marine Mammal Protection Act. You're not allowed to harass these creatures, and playing music to them is often considered harassment. <laughs> you so, uh, whether that's uh, good, whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. I, I think it, I try not to play too loud. I want them to be able to hear me, but not be too loud. And when they don't like it, I'll stop. <laughs> <I'm> certainly, <laughs> I'm not going to do it constantly for weeks or months on end. You point out that uh, a, a very in, uh, intriguing challenge with this, that I suppose to some extent it was true also with bird song, is how does one notate it? Uh, if you want to describe it, I mean, and you know, we've already talked about some of the machinery that gives us sort of scientific printouts, but the temptation has been to try to notate this, if indeed it is, if we want to think of it as music or singing or songs. It, it's interesting how much less of that has been done with whale songs. Right. The sound is immediately, although it's very structured and very musical, it immediately seems far away from the, you know, the Western scale and staff. You know, you hear these sounds, and then it's hard to notate things like that, even though you immediately hear there is a rhythm and shape and form to it. Yeah. In our closing minutes, I want you to tell the really intriguing story in your uh, book about, um, well, we should mention that you, you touch on not only that first record that came out uh, with, with actual whale song on and the enormous difference that made with the public, but all of the wonderful musical compositions which came in its wake, including Alan Hovannis's wonderful orchestral work and that haunting song uh, sung by Judy Collins to the sound of Humpback Whale Song and Paul Winter and others. You also mention uh, finding a magnificent song by the great Pete Seeger, a song which incredibly had never been recorded. Tell, right. tell our listeners just a little about that. Well, I read about this song in an old New York Times article from 1971. It said, 1970 was the year of the whale. We had all this music, including Pete Seeger's song, uh, World's Last Whale. And I said, hmm, I was trying to look for a recording. It's pretty easy to look up recordings today, as you know. There didn't seem to be one. I typed in the, like, the lyrics, asking for the lyrics, and the lyrics came up on a website, and it mentioned this song has never been recorded. And I read the lyrics, and I said, these lyrics are all about recording the whale song. What a great song. And then, you know, Pete Seeger lives up the road from me here in upstate New York, and I just, um, you know, I'd, I'd uh, done some performance with him a month before, and then uh, I said, oh, let's record it today. I'll call him up. So I called him up and asked him about this song. He goes, what song? I never wrote a song like that. I go, yeah, you did says right here and it goes like this and i started reciting the lyrics it goes oh yes my body remembers that uh, my mind you know i'm 87 years old you know i i don't have time for any of my old new songs or new old songs and uh, i said come on you should sing it and he said no 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 i'm too old too old for that and then uh, eventually um i did convince him to perform it with me a few times but when it came time to record it he said no you should sing it i said i can't sing because everybody can sing and I remember he actually had told me that when I was in the elementary school 30-odd <laughs> years ago. So. Oh, yeah, that's one of his <laughs> abiding themes. Yeah, and these are, these are certainly wonderful words about coming to appreciate this, uh, the, these songs and, 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 and singing. And part of the words are, I didn't just hear grunting, I didn't just hear squeaks, I didn't hear just bellows, I didn't hear just shrieks. It was the musical singing and the passionate wail that came from the heart of the world's last whale.
Yes, it's it's really one of the best songs written about this whole thing, and I'm glad to have resuscitated it. And uh, it is performed it. He came up with Xerox copies of the music and was handing it out to people. Keep this song alive. Hmm. Let's not let it die. So I think we'll be hearing more versions. And then when I recorded on the records, the last track I added in the background, the the, the sounds of fin whales and blue whales, kind of all sped up, so they have this rhythm. And so it's kind of an unusual version, and uh, but there we get those thousand mile songs themselves, hmm. right there, up there, and out. So, well, so much to enjoy and to think about in thousand mile song whale music in a sea of sound with companion audio CD, and uh, the author and uh, man responsible for all of this uh, this basic books publication, David Rothenberg. David Rothenberg, I thank you so much. Thanks uh, so for much. Creating There's this. a website for this book and CD, thousandmilesong.com, and there you can read up and listen and get a sense of what it's about. Very good. Thanks so much. You're listening to The Morning Show on WGTDHD, your gateway to public radio. I'm Gregory Berg. I suspect that some of you remember as fondly as I do a conversation which I had on The Morning Show a year or two ago with author Ted Carasotti, talking about a book which has been called by more than one critic maybe the best book about dogs ever written, Merle's Door, and an absolutely beautiful, wonderful book. And anyone who loves dogs uh, had to love it as much as I did. Uh, in the wake of the death of, of uh, Ted Carasotti's beloved Merle, uh, a number of people asked him uh, if he was going to be getting a, a, a new dog anytime soon and also eagerly awaited a, a new book from him. And actually, uh, as he says on the, on the liner notes, both of those questions are at last answered yes with a book that's just come out called Pucka, The Pup After Merle. And uh, it is a, a very different book from its predecessor, but uh, equally heartwarming. And uh, I'm very, very happy to have uh, Ted Carasotti back on the morning show to talk about his newest book, which is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Ted Carasotti, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thanks so much again for having me, Craig. I'm uh, excited about this. I so enjoyed our last conversation. Uh, as I said, you seem to have been inundated by uh, questions about whether or not you would ever try to get another dog to, in effect, replace your beloved Merle. It's kind of interesting how people can sometimes feel very forward about those kind of questions when they're talking about a pet, maybe not even realizing uh, what highly personal uh, ground they're, they're, they're treading on, maybe not as carefully as they should. Uh, well, I think it's a, it's a legitimate question, especially because dogs only live 12 to 15 years someplace in that range and the thought of having only one dog in one's life for many people would be as heartbreaking as losing that dog and so unlike a human spouse with whom we all hope to spend our whole whole lives with uh, it's fully expected that that we will have more than one dog and so I thought it was a, a legitimate question, and certainly Merle's Door was, a, in addition to being a biography of Merle, a, a highly personal memoir of his and my life together. I, I never took offense when people asked, are you going to get another dog? And in fact, there is a subtext buried in there. I believe a lot of people wanted that answer because uh, 
they were finding a way to get over the grief they had from losing a beloved dog. And certainly I've gotten many emails to that effect saying, how did you get over Merle's death? What did you do? And I hope to answer that question in far greater detail in the third book of this trilogy, Why Dogs Die Young and What We Can Do About It. Mm. Tucka is a, is a lighthearted, sweet book talking about the first six months of a dog's life. And, and Pucka wasn't around to see me go through the grieving process, so he can't really talk about it in his book. Tell us uh, just a, a word or two, if you would, about that time between losing Merle and uh, choosing Pucka to be your new dog. Uh, I mean, did you wait a particular period of time or wait for some sort of emotional switch to be flipped inside you, or um, did it just sort of happen, in a sense, easily and naturally? What I did was I wrote Merle's door. I was so heartbroken at losing this companion who, with whom I'd spent the previous 13 and a half years doing everything with, that almost, oh, it was only about three or four weeks after his death that I sat down and I started to write about him. And it was my way, it was my subterfuge, if you will, to try and cheat death and bring Merle back in every one of his details. So I spent close to three years recreating him and having those three more years with him. I got to spend every another three years every day with him, writing about our adventures, his antics. And then I spent another year going on the book tour, talking about him and sharing with people his life. And I believe it was those four years that allowed my heart to heal and allowed me to part from Merle on gentler terms than the one that death gives all of us. Mm-hmm. So once that had happened, I, I love dogs, and I couldn't imagine not having another dog in my life. And so I, at that point, I thought, okay, uh, I am ready. And, and certainly I, during all that time, I was always seeing Merle, this, this spirit dog, still by my side. And it was at that point that I think he said, yeah, you, 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 it's time for you to bring another, another flesh and blood dog into your life. You tell us that you actually uh, thought a little bit about buying a pup at, at one point when you were still on the publicity tour for Merle's Door, and there just wasn't any way you could take a tiny puppy with you. Correct. But, uh, but then uh, maybe a year or so later, that same uh, mother gave birth to another litter of pups, and there you were. Tell us how you selected Pucka out of that uh, litter of puppies. Pucka was the darkest male of all the male dogs, and I, and I wanted another male dog. I felt as if Merle was the, the brother that I didn't have. I have a, a cousin who is just like my brother, but he lives 2,000 miles away. And Merle was the, the brother, the, the close male friend who was at my side every day. And I, I wanted another male dog for that reason. And when I saw Abby's litter, there was one darkly golden puppy who had Merle's coloring, and I just 
focused on him and met him when he was 20 hours old. And then when I went back seven weeks later and did puppy aptitude tests with them, that golden puppy just had a really calm and collected nature. He was quite affectionate. He also seemed really athletic, and uh, he, w- he was the guy who I hung my heart <laughs> on, and he seemed to really like me. As some of the pictures that are in the book uh, tell, he's snuggling in my, in my lap, and he, w- he was the fellow who came back to Wyoming with me. We should mention, I don't think we've actually said it at all, that first of all, this is uh, a wonderful picture book. That is, there is a wonderful photograph on each and every page, uh, some kind of view of of Pucka, and many of them uh, pictures of the two of you. And I'm just realizing now how dumb I was, but I, I probably got halfway through the book uh, ready to compliment you on being such a wonderful photographer, and then I'm realizing there's no way you're the photographer here. Uh, you must have decided at some point that that this was going to be an important experience, and that you wanted it um, extensively documented with uh, not only your own written recollections in the voice of Pucka, but uh, that you wanted uh, a, a very rich visual record as well of this time with uh, your brand new puppy. That's correct. This book was not on my radar screen last year. I was deep into the research for Why Dogs Die Young. But as I sent photos of Pucka around to friends and family and my editor and agent, much the way a proud parent does, with little captions that that I was writing, translating from Pucka, the idea occurred to me some time, a month into it, that here was another book documenting the maturation of a puppy and how to raise a puppy and with kinder, gentler methods than a lot of puppy books advocate these days. Once that decision was made, once Houghton Mifflin Harcourt decided to do this book between the other two, creating a trilogy, it became clear that I alone couldn't photograph the whole book, that if I were going to truly document the interaction between a human and a new puppy, I had to be in the pictures, and I needed to hire some photographers to help me. So the upshot of that is that I took about 75% of the photos in the book that show Pucka by himself and Pucka with other wildlife. And then the three photographers who followed us around literally every minute of a day or two days at some times took the rest of them. Mm. So I can compliment you on being a wonderful photographer in addition <laughs> to wonderful uh, writer. Um, and one of the things that I, I so appreciate about this book is that uh, in a way that is in no way heavy-handed, you are sort of talking us through a lot of the choices that you made in, in raising Pucka uh, and, and, and training him, uh, not by writing a puppy training book, but just by sort of showing us, exactly. and, and, and through the voice of Pucka, in terms of the choices uh, you made for, for giving him a, a rich, full, fun-filled life. And uh, I wonder if, if, I suspect that might not have even been a, a fully conscious decision on your part, but one which worked out so nicely. It was a conscious decision on my part, because it had been the last puppy that I helped to raise, I was... 12 years old. That was a long time ago. 
and a lot of things have changed since then. And I'm a great believer in being taught by experts. So I read a ton of puppy books before meeting Pucka. And they seem to me, quite a few of them, to be far too draconian in their methods, far too harsh uh, vis-a-vis this new young infant dog. For example, you need to keep the dog, the puppy, in a crate 24-7 or else it's not going to learn how to be housebroken. Or you cannot give it any freedom around the house. You need to leash it to your waist. These things to me seemed a little ridiculous, and especially that uh, these experts would say to people that if the dog has one mistake in the house, that's a crisis, and it could mean that the dog will never be housebroken properly. And I thought to myself, how did we housebreak dogs for tens of thousands of years without crates and without leashing them to our waist. This doesn't make any sense to me. (laughs) It's certainly not the way I treated Merle, and I wasn't going to treat Pucka. Did Pucka have accidents in the house? You bet, probably 20 of them. Uh, I would pick him up and say, outside, 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 let's go. And outside, we would would go. And within two months, Pucka was almost perfectly housebroken. Uh, And so I wanted to present to people in a really light-handed way the notion that they didn't have to get bent out of shape if a puppy peed in the house. You cleaned it up, you didn't put your puppy's nose in it, you walked him outside, and there you went. And the dog would probably be a lot happier, and you would be uh, a lot less stressed out for looking at, at puppy training as something that's been done since wolves and people got together. Mm. Uh, and it, this is not something that is new to the 21st century. There's thousands of years of history behind it. Millions of dogs have been housebroken. Uh, we, we don't need to get too bent out of shape about it. Right. Uh, we, we read about so many uh, uh, amazing uh, moments which the two of you share, including uh, towards the end of the book, uh, a wonderful adventure of whitewater rafting. And uh, a couple of my favorite photos are when uh, you and and uh, and uh, Pucka are uh, at the, the 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 seashore of of Seattle, and the way in which she is uh, tentative for a moment or two, uh, <laughs> as those waves come crashing in, and pretty soon is just flying into them. It's wonderful to see. I wonder if we could just take a couple of minutes and have you mention uh, a very interesting uh, moment in Pucka's young life, in which he is actually uh, injured by. Uh, one of the neighbor's dogs, uh, a moment that had to be terribly frightening for him, probably traumatic, at least in the short term, and yet something which he survived. Yes. It was the very first morning he was in Kelly after driving back with me from Minnesota, and he was in my office, and uh, being a curious, rambunctious puppy, he was and certainly only as big as a house cat. He was up on my desk looking at the computer screen, playing with the with the cursor uh, going across the screen, and I needed to to be on the phone uh, talking about a computer problem that was going on. And I thought, okay, here's an an opportunity not to create him, so I gave him an elk bone. Immediate, absolute attention on the elk bone. He was happy. 
on one side of my desk, and in the dog door, into Merle's door, now Pucka's door, walked A.J., the yellow lab who lives across the field, and who became my sidekick after Merle's death. About a year later, he moved in, into the house across the field. We became good friends. He comes in, he sees Pucka eating this bone. His immediate body language was, Ugh, a new dog, I'm replaced. And harumph, he sits down, he looks grumpy. I looked at him, and Pucka walked over to say hello. And before I could do anything, AJ jumped up, growling and slashed him. I think he meant to just knock him with the side of his head, as adult dogs do to puppies, whom they don't want around. But instead, his eye tooth, one of his big canine teeth, caught Pucka right underneath the eye, his right eye, and opened it up in about an inch and a quarter gash. And Pucka was screaming and bleeding and peeing. I booted AJ out. I picked Pucka up, got him swabbed off, and cuddled him and told him what a brave dog he was, and then took him to a vet. And fortunately, nothing happened to his eye. But Pucka was pretty traumatized by that for a couple of weeks. He, he would not go over toward AJ's house. He would sit down, look at me, and say, I'm not walking that way across the field. So I'd have to pick him up, carry him a couple of hundred yards through the sage, and once we were outside this invisible fence that Pucka had erected in his mind as his safety zone, I could put him down, and then he would walk with me. <laughs> uh, now he and AJ play together. Uh, Pucka is bigger than AJ. And did it traumatize him long-term? Well, I think it made him a slightly more serious dog than he would be otherwise. He's, he's got a cautious air. He looks at other dogs when we're outside, even though he, he's very friendly to them, with an, an air that seems to say, okay, before I'm friendly, I'm going to make sure you're friendly. <laughs> Which is not the, not the worst uh, kind of caution. And you have Pucka at one point uh, in, in a caption beneath uh, one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole book. You have him saying, in three weeks, my eye was much better though I think I might always have a scar. That's right. okay. It'll remind me that a dog has to be careful and that life is not perfect. The book is, again, called Pucka, The Pup After Merle. It is an absolutely beautiful book, and it is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and uh, uh, the subtitle, As Told by Pucka to Ted Carasotti. Ted Garasotti, I thank you so much for joining me uh, today, and uh, uh, what a pleasure to speak with you about your beautiful book. Thank you so much, Greg, as, as always. I really appreciate your having me on your show.